0: I asked a question and, um, you know, the, uh, the hard thing for me is to not uh, get uh, too fixated on the side trails and decide what is uh, worth covering at a very, like, superficial level and where we need to, like, push pause and, like, actually take a moment. And um, I think uh, this is one of those times in... Um, uh, in the in the text where we would tend to just kind of read over what's happening and uh, we talk about it But you wouldn't quite make all the connections uh, behind why what is happening is happening and appreciate those for what they are and so um, This week and next week kind of go together and this week is the front end of that and next week is the the better explanation and probably the real if you want to say it this way the, the meat of uh, What I what I want to say but introduce today and so um, will be. Um, I am ambitious. I'm trying to get through uh, Acts uh, 6, 8, all the way through eight, one. I cannot read all of that. Uh, a good chunk of this is chapter 7, where Stephen is giving his speech before uh, the Sanhedrin. And, um, and uh, there's lots in there. And uh, it's one of the longest chapters. It's one of the longest recorded sermons. It's longer than Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And so um, we just want to take what's happening there and recognize that it's happening and then right at the end uh, uh, and the, the result of that at the beginning of chapter 8, eight one, is sort of where we want to look at the results. But we're, we're just taking like a survey of that and I want to talk about the idea of, of, um, of God exercising choice and what does that mean? And I, I think uh, when you hear that, maybe you clam up a bit and uh, you shouldn't. And I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about what it means that, uh, that God is sovereign, or that he, he exercises choice, or that we're chosen. And so I, I think it's important that we observe what's happening in Stephen's life, what we're seeing happen in the text, and then uh, really make that like a practical application for, for well, what is, how do we see God's uh, choice in that, and, uh, and then how can we use that in our own lives. So with that being uh, sort of an extended intro, let me pray for our time in the Word and... Um, We'll just uh, humble ourselves and ask the Lord to help us this morning. God, we love you. Uh, I do thank you for this opportunity that we get to share in Your Word. Um, I ask that as we navigate um, what can be sometimes a, a hard subject or a difficult subject, uh, that You would help me to articulate um, Your love and Your grace as it needs to be understood and spoken to our hearts, God. Um, I ask that you would um, keep me from error this morning, that uh, only truth would be spoken, and um, that all that's um, said and done would glorify you, and I pray that you would um, give us the tools and the means to um, make use and fruitfulness in our lives of your word, that you would give us hearts to receive, what you would speak. God, I ask for um, an extra dose of humility this morning in each of us. Uh, that our ears would um, be open to hear your voice speaking and that our eyes would see your beauty and your um, graciousness to us in speaking. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, the question about uh, like the, the preceding events... Um, that are causes to other things, and then the results of those things is really is really what I'm after. At, at any point in your life, uh, or anything that you look at, and you isolate it, and you ask, "What caused this? What caused this to be the way that it is? Or, or why is this happening right now?" There's there's always an immediate cause, but it's never the only cause, right? Uh, there's there's millions and billions of preceding things. Um, There's a theory, and uh, I don't know that it's totally, absolutely true, but it's called the butterfly effect. Do you know this? Uh, the butterfly effect is effectively this that if a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the globe, the uh, little tiny wisp of air eventually becomes cascades and can cause a tidal wave on the other side of the globe. So the idea is this that one small change or ripple uh, has consequences on other things, which also then changes how those operate. And then you can see the cascade of effects eventually. When you look at anything, you're never looking at uh, an isolated incident. There's nothing that exists in isolation. Uh, I tried to. Um, show you that a little bit in the primer and the fact that, yes, I'm here and you're here because you made a choice this morning to drive here or get a ride here or maybe your parents drug you here or whatever it is that you're here this morning. But, but that's only the direct cause. But Because if you were resp- you kind of rewind before that, well, like, why is that true? Well, you know, there's a a myriad of things that you could look at and say, well, is this the cause? Is that the cause? Well, yeah, all those contributed, and some things contributed to those things being the cause. And so, do you see that everything is somewhat connected in this giant spider web of cause and effect? Yes? And because this is true, there's only two ways um, that you can look at the world. Um, it's a binary. It's a universal binary, and it's binary because of the fact that everything is interconnected. And so binary just means it, it's got to be either or. There's no in-between. There's no hybrid. There's no intermediate position. And the, in the, two, um, the two ways that you can look at uh, the world is this. Um, all things are random. Uh, they are uh, uncontrolled. They're unguided and therefore meaningless. If all things are random, they must all be random. Or if anything is random, let me say it that way, if anything is random, then all things must be random. And the reason that's true is because the implication of the second part of that, which is the other way that you can look at the word, that all things have purpose, and all things are guided, and all things are controlled. And the reason why it has to be binary is because if one thing is controlled and one thing is guided, it also affects other things, and therefore they are then affected and controlled and guided. Do you see this? Okay, so um, the truth is everybody... Um, may look at this and they say, well, I don't fall into one of those particular categories because I have a third intermediate position, Mitch, that you don't know about, right? Because I don't like the idea that uh, things are guided or controlled. I I feel I have an influence on the world. And uh, so you'd probably have to categorize yourself in that second category where you say things are random. But this only leaves you with two options. That God is God or things are random and therefore incoherent. There's no meaning, there's no purpose in anything that happens, just random events that are happening. You're making choices and nothing's influencing that and you feel that way because you do make choices as in the fact that you got up this morning and you got in your car this morning and you arrived here this morning and so the question of whether or not there was some influence on that or some control on that that forced you to be here, you'd rather fall in the second category because you don't think that you were controlled or influenced or guided here. But the truth is that that puts man is God and not God is God. You know, this must be true because of the essential qualities of who God is. And we look at the world, and we, we feel how we operate through the world, and we say, I make choices, and therefore I must have some kind of control. And therefore, God cannot be controlling those things. And um, there's lots of squirrely ways where we try to make that work. And the, the primary way we make that work is, uh, 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 it's called Compatibility. That God is doing some things, and he knows some things, and he controls some things, but he doesn't control all things. And the reason why he doesn't control all things is because then I would just be a robot, just playing out this movie. And um, and that feels like that vindicates you, but what does that do to God? Well, the answer is it makes God not God. Because if God is all-knowing, there can't be anything that he doesn't know. Does that make sense? So if you take that away from him, he ceases to be God. If God is not in sovereign control of every absolute thing that happens, He ceases to be God. Now, that feels very like, like, I just squashed everything, right? Now, that doesn't change the fact that you still got up this morning and made a choice. So our experience of this does not change the truth of it. Okay? And so you have to have, you have to hold attention that, that Scripture asserts who God is, is absolute about that, and that you um, hold a, a, um, a responsibility, if you want to say it that way. So the first statement in the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is that God is sovereign. He does all that he pleases, but he, he does that. He brings it to pass. He does all things by the counsel of his will, but he does it without any harm to the, the will of the creature. That's you and I. That you and I do things expressing our will, and yet somehow God already has known that. And not only has he known that, but he's chosen that thing to bring about something else. And we look at that and we go, what about my bad choices? And I want you to see that the things that happen in the text now, now focus on the text, that there's things happening that we go, that seems bad, and yet they're bringing about ultimate goods. Even in people's bad, wrong, false, poor choices, God is bringing about his goods. They're not always connected so close that we can go, I see how those are connected, but there's enough of it in this text that if we back up, we can see it in, in like three ways, okay? So what I see in six, uh, you know, chapter six, end of chapter six, all the way through seven and ending in eight one is, is um, Stephen's life itself, showing how God has orchestrated things in Stephen's life to show us this being true, that there are things that are bringing about God's purposes that come to fruition when Stephen is appointed as uh, a deacon in the church that he serves out that, that he pushes that service into his whole life and the result of that as he makes his testimony before the Sanhedrin and then his uh, martyrdom his death as the first Christian martyr okay so there's Stephen's life itself then there's the speech that Stephen gives and he recounts most of the history of Israel as God's chosen people and so he's illustrating over and over how God is a god who initiates how he closes the gap that is unclosable by man he initiates the relationship and he chooses that because man's incapable of doing that. And so he recounts um, the, the main people that you would be familiar with in Moses and Abraham, right? And so he does that through his testimony. And then um, the third way is that you, you just kind of zoom out a little bit more and then you see the ultimate result of what God is doing through through uh, Stephen is he becomes the catalyst not just for um, uh, not not just for. I'm sorry, I should introduce one more thing. He, as the result of, of uh, Stephen's life and his testimony, we find out that there's another guy that we become familiar with in the New Testament who we know as Paul, the apostle, who is Saul, as we find him in chapter 8, verse 1. He's, he's Saul, the one who's approving of the death of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen. And so it's, it's Stephen's life, his testimony, and all that God is doing through that that brings about the catalyst for the um, spread of the gospel, that the church being spread outside of Jerusalem, that um, it, it's, a, it's a, now a life or death thing uh, to be a witness for Christ. And so he, he, he functions as sort of a linchpin or a hinge point. And so I just want to examine that this morning uh, in, in a way. And you're going to have to trust me that what I say is in the text, and chapter 7 is there, uh, and we'll, because we'll cover it in depth next week, but I'm just going to have to assert some of those things so we can uh, make some of those points. Are you with me? Okay. So nothing happens in isolation. In the book of Acts, because of the kind of record it is, it affords us that opportunity when things aren't directly effect, uh, connected, where we say, oh yeah, cause, effect, cause, effect. When, we, when they're not like that, we can back up and we can examine the history, and then we can make some of those connections that we're not otherwise privileged to. And so it's, Acts is the record of the events of the divine hand of God bringing about what God has intended to do. And it's the divine hand of God that we don't often, we don't often see. They said that the, the, the primary um, subject of, of the book of Acts, even though the, the book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it's really the Holy Spirit. And he's kind of the one always in every page, operating in the background, bringing things to pass. And, um, and because this is true, um, we, we kind of look at the picture. And uh, how many of you guys remember that picture of... Uh, you're familiar with Norman Rockwell, and he's got the, the guy, and he's painting a picture, and he's leaning over, and it's a picture of a picture painting a picture. You see that one? And that's like what's happening in the text. It's like we, we see Stephen's life playing something out. He's talking about the fact of, of who God is and what he's done for people and choosing them, and it's a picture of a picture of what the Holy Spirit is doing, and that's this uh, divine hand that we get to look in and see that it's sketching the portrait that we're looking at. Do you see this? Okay, and so that's sort of what we're looking at today. I, I'm trying to give you uh, how I see the text and, and so that you can follow what I'm trying to assert. And so um, who is making that picture? Well, it's, it's God. Now, what we look at in the text is we see, well, there's a problem that shows up in the church where some of the widows are being neglected. And the result of that is that um, the church is then directed to get together and to appoint or choose from among you some, some leaders to take over this task. And then we see um, how, how man is doing things. They're, they're actually making choices based on uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, for who is qualified for that. You'll find that in chapter 6 where it says, choose from among you um, seven, and they were chosen from among them. So we, we see the idea that Stephen is one who is chosen. He's appointed to the task. And this is a good and glorious hope that we are chosen people. It's not something that um, stifles and and restricts. It's a promise of freedom, not fatalism. It is um, because God is the only one who is unrestricted, can do whatever he wants. um, He is the only one with with true freedom. Now, you and I exercise a a restrictive kind of freedom. You cannot choose to do whatever you want. You, You must choose within the choices that you're given, and you operate within the desires of your heart. Now... The, the blessed truth of the whole thing is that those desires can be influenced and manipulated. If they're bent towards the wrong thing. That's what we're told about. That every desire of man's heart naturally is inclined in things not based on God. But God can bend those towards him, and we can make good decisions in the way that he wants us to, that are honoring for him. In fact, we're implored throughout Scripture to make kinds of good decisions. So far from being God's in control, just don't worry about it. Watch the movie play out. That's how most people kind of pejorative, pejoratively classify God's sovereignty or his choice, that's not what's happening. Um, It's, it's, you're implored because you have a will. God has equipped you with it, and he wants you to use it in the way that um, honors him and glorifies him. So, so we do participate in this in a real way. So we're all experiencing making choices. We're implored to make the right kinds of choices. And so you may go away this morning with a tension, and that's the right tension. And the tension is this, God is sovereign, but I have responsibility. And that's, that's, how God God has recorded it in his word for us. And that's what we have to walk away with. And and our our tendency is to want to uh, um, respond to that with philosophy and morality. And all of that is informed by our um, inclinations on what's best and what we think is wise. And and that's not what's presented. So we have to to err on the side of the text. We have to err on the side of scripture. And that's why I ask for that extra dose of humility. Because we need it. And it's hard, it's a hard thing because choice sounds arbitrary to us. So God's just out here and he's eeny meeny miny mowing on people, and other people are just you know not chosen. Like what, what do we do with that? Well, um, I told you last week we were talking about serving and how that serving is life and that serving is all of life. And um, and we see that the, the the position to serve is something that's chosen. And we looked at first Peter 2. And uh, it says, you are, remember, a chosen, a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. And uh, that, that's an important echo of what we find in the Old Testament. You are a chosen people. And we, um, we, we walked through that, and we talked about the importance of not just um, being, being somebody that's brought into the harvest, but also being a worker in the harvest. And I, I gave you, like, the first half, if you remember, of the parable of the wedding feast. Are you, is, is it ringing any bells? slightly. <laughs> Not enough, I guess. Okay. If you want to go with me to Matthew 22, we were talking about the parable of the wedding feast, and how um, Jesus is telling this parable, and, and God is in the position of the one throwing a great banquet for uh, his son, who is the, the, the groom, the, the honored, um, the, the one who the feast is honoring. And he, he's, um, he's invited people, remember, and they have all these excuses about why they can't come to the feast that's been prepared for them. Remember, with, and, and all of those excuses have to do with things that they'd rather do that serve themselves. Now does it ring a bell? Okay, good. Right? So uh, the, one guy's like, hey, I got to go attend to, um, you know, uh, let me just find it for you. So the, the wedding feast is ready. They go out. They're trying to invite him. There's all the excuses. Um, uh, See, i prepared. I'm trying to find it for you. Huh. But they would not come. Um, in uh, verse uh, 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent his servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. There it is in verse 5. One went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized, seized his servants. They treated them shamefully, and they killed them. And the king was angry. And so he sent his troops, listen, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. That's like, it feels uh, quite um, harsh, right? That's his response. It uh, feels rash, but follow with me Then verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. Go, uh, those who were invited were not worthy, but go therefore into the main roads. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out. They went into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, and they both good and bad to the wedding feast, and it, the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him in outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now pause here for just a second, because up to this point, everybody's tracking with the story, right? There was people that were invited in the kingdom, and they resisted. They had other things they felt that were more important, and they resisted. And then um, the response to that by the, the wedding feast is that he, uh, oh, they also treated his servants shamefully. That would be the prophets of God. And um, we, we find this exact same story told by Stephen in his sermon all through um, chapter 7, how the testimony kept coming before the people, and the people kept resisting. And the last thing he says, you stiff-necked people, which of the prophets did you not stone and kill? And so here, here we see that playing out in Jesus' parable. Now, um, so, so we're with that. We get it. And so then he says, look, it's not just then. We won't just invite those who... Um, were originally intended. And that would be just the nation of Israel. He says, go into the streets and the highways, find whoever will come. The different version of the parable says, go find the the poor and the, the needy. They'll come to my wedding and invite whoever you find. And so then we see that the gospel gets to go to anybody. And so all these people stream in and we get it. And then they're equipped with this wedding garment and they're there at the feast. And then the feast master comes in, the king comes in, and then he finds one guy who's there without a wedding garment. And he's... The the guy is speechless. The king says, like, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? And we find out uh, that he doesn't have an excuse. So what happens? Well, that guy's tossed out. And so if we're honest about what's happening here, it's like, well, he said, go into the highways and the streets, get whoever will come, good and bad. And I said this last week, the harvest is a mixed bag. It's not curated. It's not go out and find the people who God has sovereignly chosen um, Spurgeon once said, if, uh, if God had marked those who he predestined with a red stripe on their back, he'd go around lifting up men's shirts. Okay? We don't have a red stripe. We don't know who God has chosen, who God is going to bring into the kingdom. So you invite all, any who will come. But not everybody who comes is um, what we find out in verse 14 is a hard word for us. Many are called, but few are. And he says this word chosen. And we don't know what to do with that we're like, well, but isn't the invitation enough? It's not enough. It's not enough by Jesus's words, not my words to you. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. So, so what do we do with this idea that many are called, few are chosen? And uh, what do we do with the idea of being chosen? Well, first you need to recognize that um, God first covered the distance to you. He, he didn't say, well, I, I put out the invitation to the wedding feast and, um, you know, those that, that uh, resisted, oh well, and, um, you know, too bad, so sad. He directs his servants to go out into the places where they're at and, and go into the highways, go into the fields, find the people who will come, seek them out. He's covering the gap of those who were not seeking out an invitation to the wedding. Do you see that? Okay, it's, it, there's the initiating value of what's happening. And, and he's invited any who would respond, anybody who would be piqued by their interest to come. And so, um, any who are, who are willing, come into this thing. But that's not the qualification necessarily in and of itself. That's not enough. But, so, so you need to turn this in reverse. This is sometimes the easiest way um, to understand sometimes what Jesus is saying when things are confusing. If you just work backwards, then you'll find out what it is that he's intending. So not all that show up who are called are chosen, but all who are chosen are called, okay? So the the invitation has to go out. So you are first called, and the invitation is part of God's grace to us. And it can't possibly mean, literally, the gospel invitation to everybody. Because he says the, the, the invitation has, been, has gone out into the world. The, the, the testimony of who God is and what he's like is written uh, in his creation. That's, that's Paul's testimony in Romans 1. So there's an undeniable reality that God is God and I'm not. And... Because of this, um, we're held accountable. So, when the Bible speaks of what it means to be chosen, it's a different kind of chosen than when you and I think of chosen. Because when you and I choose things, it's, it's a very, um, it's a transactional choice. We look at the quality of something, we look at the promise of what the payoff will be, and then we choose it. Does that make sense? You go to the store, you look at the prices, you see what the ingredients are, whatever it is, and you choose that item based on your value perception of that. That's how humans choose things. Yes? And we're told specifically in Scripture, God does not choose like man chooses. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, meaning he doesn't value whatever thing that you think that you present on the outside and then go, I think I need that on my team. I choose you. So the other way that we get around the idea that God is sovereign in choice is we say something like this. Well, what God has done in choosing us is he looked down the corridor of time to see what my response would be to the gospel coming, and he saw that I would respond, and therefore he chose me. And what you've done again is you've taken a God who is outside of time, who knows all things, and is powerful over everything, and you've said, no, I need to limit you. And he can't do that, because he's not God anymore, if that's what happens. And that means that he's based it on your response, and that's terrible news for you. That's the worst news for you, Here's why that's bad news. Because if that was the case, let me grant that for you for a moment, that your response is what merits God's choosing. If that's true, then from the moment you heard the gospel and from the moment you repented, will you point to your perfect record as the reason why God chose you? You can't do it. If, If it's based on my record, I'm hopelessly wrecked and lost. Are you not... Okay? So the problem with wanting to merit it is you can't merit it. So you can't possibly be basing on your response and what you eventually will produce. Now, this is simultaneously the most freeing thing you could ever embrace. is God's sovereignty in choosing you. Because he covered the distance that you could not cover. And he brought you in. He equipped you with what you did not have. Because you would not be able to earn it. Humans choose by outward appearances. We, we, we look at the promise or the benefit of something. God, however, chooses by his own good pleasure. It's the limitation and belittling of God's character to say otherwise. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, God says to Israel through Moses like this, you are a people holy to God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, okay, so God looks across any, any choice that he possibly had. He sees Israel, and he chooses them as his treasured possession. He says, all the people on the face of the earth, God has chosen you. Now, verse 7, just listen to the word of God. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, and he chose you. You were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of... Um, Egypt with a mighty hand, and he redeemed you from the house of slavery by the uh, from the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. You are not chosen because God sees how important you are, and He needs you on His team. Remember what what um, what Paul says in, in, in Acts 17. God's not a, a man that He can be served by human hands. There's nothing that you can offer Him that He doesn't already have. He's complete without us. He's choosing to bring you are important because you're chosen. You're not uh, chosen because you're important. And to see that is, is, um, is a beautiful thing. Why does this matter? Because our understanding of what God is doing for us and choosing us is the hope that we base all of our life on. It's, it's, not, it's not to look and say, well, I don't know if I'm chosen, therefore I'm hopeless. Okay? Ephesians 1.4 is, a, is a, a restatement, if you will, of, um, in the New Testament of this exact same principle that we just heard in uh, Deuteronomy 7. Ephesians 1, 4, I have it for you, starting in um, verse 4. It says that Jesus, that being the he there, even as he, Jesus, chose us, or God, it chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He did this in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I've highlighted specific words and phrases in there. That he chose us. That's that's something that he does. He's exercising his uh, divine priority. And when did he do that? Did he do it when he looked down the corridors of time to see how you would do? Or what you would offer him? No. Before the foundation of the world, he's put these things in place. That we would be a uh, a holy and blameless people. We are kind of homely though, right? (laughs) He did this in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons Through Jesus Christ. According to the purposes. There's a reason why he's done it. To the purpose of his will. Well, what else? To the praise. Why? So that we would praise his grace in doing so. Not his divine obligation in fulfilling his end of the bargain. That's the difference between uh, meriting something and being paid a wage and grace being grace. It has to be totally unmerited. It has to be a free gift. Or it's not grace. Okay? Okay? To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, what? His grace. Okay? Finishing out. Which he lavished on us in all his wisdom and his insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. God had a will that he was exercising. It was a mystery in ages past how how God was going to bring about all of his promises, but he's bringing about all of his promises. And he has to be in control to bring about any promise that he makes. If there's any question on whether or not God might fulfill a promise, then there's nothing that you can count on. You can't be sure that he can save you if he can't bring it to pass because your will is stronger than his. That can't be true. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. When did that plan come to pass? In the fullness of time. Why? Because God is uniting all things in heaven and earth to himself. Okay. I've asserted some things very passionately. (laughs) I want you to hear this. God's choosing is not transactional. And that's a good thing. Because it means you, not only can you not merit it, but you don't need to. Because if you couldn't earn it, then you can't keep it. If you could lose it, you would. If, he, if it's based on your record of doing, it's already gone. The chosen is an important thing that we take, we take comfort in. We take joy in. And uh, we, we, we kind of we look at it and we despise it. Um, maybe this is a bad analogy and maybe it's a bad illustration and I'll probably look at it later and go, I shouldn't have said that, but let me see if it works. We kind of look at God's grace as like a big, huge gift under the Christmas tree. But it's not specifically addressed to anybody. And the size of the gift tells us how whatever's inside there is going to be amazing, right? Like this is a, whatever's in there is expensive, right? It's going to be awesome. But if there's no name on the gift, how many of you would you invite yourself to, to find out what's inside of it? I don't think you, well, (laughs) a few brave children are like, yep, okay. (laughs) You, I'll I'll, I'll do one better. Maybe you'd peek inside of it, but would you assume it's for you? Would you take it? You wouldn't. Nobody would. What if God has written your name on that so that you know the gift is for you? What if you could see choosing like that? He's He's written grace in eternity with your name on it, and he wants you to open it. And the reason why you know he wants you to open it is because you've been chosen. Your name is on the package. Is that a different story than there's a big package and maybe I'll open it or maybe I won't. I don't know who it's to. That's what choice is. That's what God's exercising of choice so that we know the gift is for us. I want to to round this out so you can see the point I asserted I was going to make in the text, which is from Stephen. Okay, real quick. Go with me back to Acts chapter 7. Or excuse me, six. So we find out in um, starting in verse 8 that, uh, oh no, let me rewind even before that, that, that Stephen um, is uh, full of grace and power. He's doing great signs and wonders. I'm sorry, I am starting in verse 8. He's doing great signs and wonders among the people. So um, he's been appointed to this task. And then you see that the power of God is coming out in all of his life. And some of the things, some of those who belong to the, listen, the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, and the Cyrenes, and the Alexandrians, and the Cilicia, and Asia. Okay, so you need to understand something. The, the fact that we find out that Stephen is, first of all, appointed to this task. He's one of seven guys with Greek, a Greek name. So we find out that he's, uh, if you can rewind enough, remember I gave you that long explanation on why the Hellenistic Jews were kind of like a little bit on the outside, or maybe had, there was like some animosity between the Hellenistic Jews and the, the Hebrew Jews, right? Because they represented some kind of compromise. But we see that Stephen is kind of in that group. He represents one of those guys. God God has used something in, in Stephen's heritage that he had nothing to do with. He was born a Greek. He was born outside of Jerusalem. That's just who he is, okay? But more than that, he belongs to the synagogue of the freedmen. There's only two ways that happens. He was either a slave himself and was freed by his master, or he bought his freedom, or his parents were enslaved, and he was born a free person. Stephen was somebody who was in slavery or knew slavery intimately. And now he only belongs to the synagogue. And he goes and he begins to share who Jesus is with the synagogue. And of course, causes an uproar because of what God's done in his life and who God has made him to be and how he's positioned him in the world. Here he is just living the life that God has assigned him to live. And it brings about uh, some major heartache. Because what happens with this testimony is that the people— that are belong to the same synagogue. The synagogue was like the smaller, like, group of people. You just, remember I said it's, it's not temple, but it kind of is. It's where you go, you gather, you talk about God's Word, you talk about life, but it's with your, like, kind of, your closer, your people, you know? It's not your family, but it's your peeps, okay? So that's who the synagogue is. That's who he's gathering with. They rose up, they disputed with Stephen, they, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and they brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses. This should start ringing bells about who Jesus was. I said, this man never seeks to speak words against this holy place in the law. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses. He delivered us. And they gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like that of an angel. That's a, that's like an important statement, but I can't talk about it today. <laughs> so we'll come back to it. So look, then look, Chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? Then he begins his response. And for a good number of verses, I think there's 80 verses in that. No, sorry. 60 verses. He's going to give a, a response to that, uh, that question. Is this true? And so then he begins to count uh, or recount um, the lives of the patriarchs and, and how God is a God who initiates a relationship with his people. And he starts with Abraham. Abraham was living somewhere outside of uh, Jerusalem. Because remember, they're mad that he said, you know, this holy place, that's where the temple was. He said, Abraham doesn't know who God is. He's living in Mesopotamia. uh, Before he was in Haran, they said, God came to him and said, go out from your land and from your kindred. And he makes him this promise that he's going to be a great nation and so on and so forth. Then he goes on to Joseph. And Joseph, who was chosen because he wasn't... The, he wasn't the rightful heir. He wasn't the oldest brother. Joseph's the youngest brother. But God chose him among his other brothers. And he becomes the one who carries on the promise. So, uh, again, God choosing Joseph. And he, but then Joseph's life takes a turn for the worse. Slow, sold into slavery into Egypt, rises to power. His brothers hate him. Okay? Then he, he goes on to talk about Moses. Moses, somebody who is um, chosen by God. And so we, we see this theme showing up over and over. And then Moses' life goes poorly. And then there's all these cases of trying and testing. Remember I said uh, in, the, in the passage where I said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And then, but to this you've been called. What else have you been called to? Suffering. <laughs> That's the hard word. But the truth is what God is doing in the hard seasons and the places where you don't see the cause and effect happening is look at now chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Stephen gives this long testimony and the people are so upset with him. They're mad at him and they stone him and kill him. And this guy, Saul here, is there to see it all. And so you think, well, that came to nothing. And it didn't. (laughs) Because this guy, this this event of Stephen's testimony of who Jesus is and then him giving his life for the testimony of Christ is what's referred to later as the goads that, that, that Paul is kicking against. When, when Jesus says, he appears to um, Saul, and he says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus Christ. That's, this is where Paul, this is, this is the, the seed of that. Stephen's life is the seed. It's the cause, the, 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 the removed from the direct effect of it. And you see how, how God is... Moving things about that we can't always see what's happening. Are you connecting what I'm trying to show you? That choosing is a a good thing, but we can't always see why he's doing what he's doing. But you don't lose hope because of that. When when Job's life totally goes to pieces and he desperately wants an explanation and God thunders an explanation after chapter after chapter, he never says, Job, this is why I'm doing this because through the testimony of your life, so-and-so will have encouragement. He does not give him a reason. Instead, he he gives him questions that he cannot answer. Job, where were you when I did this? Job, are you powerful enough to know this, or do this, or see this? And the answer, of course, proverbial is no. So God is asserting his authority over all circumstances, and Job should see position is not to understand the why, and the truth is you think you need the why, but with the why, it wouldn't be enough. Do you know why? Do you know why it's not enough? Because you're transactional, and if God said, if I put you through this hard thing, and you give testimony to me, then here's going to be the result of it. You might look at the result of it and go, well, I don't know if that's worth it. I don't think I want to do that, and so maybe the why is not for you to know for that reason because we see it transactionally and God sees his ultimate purposes in it. You can't know that, but guess what? You can have hope in knowing that in his choosing, it will bring that about. God works all things for the good of those who love him. That's what that means. Not for your joy or pleasure all the time, but for his good purposes. So connecting the dots here is is about us seeing God's, God's prerogative in that. Now, I'll just address one small potential objection and then I promise I'm done. <laughs> have you guys watched the, Are you're at least aware of the series on TV called The Chosen? What's this, what's, this, what's this story about? It's the disciples. It's the, the, the chosen group. Jesus goes and he finds these, these random guys. Guys nobody would have chosen to follow him. And yet he chooses them out of whatever location they were in he calls them away from that to follow him. Come and follow me. And, and they do. And uh, you say, hey, that, that worked out really well. But one of those guys was chosen and he didn't work out so good. So what do I do with the fact that men are called and fewer chosen? And then even some of the chosen, one of those guys seems like he, you know, blew the whole situation where chosen was a good thing. Okay? When Jesus um, gives us high priestly prayer in John 17... He acknowledges this very thing. He says, all that were given to me, I've lost none. They were given into your hand, and God, you hold them firm, except for the son of perdition, the one who was destined already to fulfill scripture, to be the one who betrayed the Lord. So even in the disobedience, in the choices that Judas exercised, he is ultimately fulfilling God's purposes. You see the whole thing. It doesn't matter good or bad. You exercising your will and your choice is real. It does happen. You choose wrong things, but God is still bringing about his purposes through those. This is good news. <laughs> so I want you to see Stephen's example for us. Is, is, it's encouraging that God would use us, these broken vessels, to bring about his purposes. And we have real participation in that. So whatever you look at in your life and you think, that's going real poorly. I should have made a different choice. Maybe you should have and use that as a corrective in the Holy Spirit. But listen, you, you must trust in the things where things are going poorly and maybe it feels like outside of your control and things are chaotic, that God has a good purpose in it, whether you can see it or not. That's, that's, that's a place to put your hope and your rest. Because if, you, if, you're, if you're constantly wondering, well, I see the payoff of this. We find out in... in um, in in Stephen's testimony, that Abraham didn't see the payoff. He said he promised him land, but he didn't give him one foot of it. He died without seeing the promise realized. And then, you know, Moses, guess what? Did he get a set foot in the promised land? No. But he died in hope. We find that out in Hebrews. All of these died in hope. So maybe the hope is not in seeing the tangible benefit and holding it and go, here's my hope. But the faith is greater and the reward is greater in having the hope when you're not holding it. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that... um